thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Howard Andrew Trafford was born in Scunthorpe on the 15th of March 1952. Growing up, his family moved from Scunthorpe to Nuneaton in Warwickshire, and then on to Moortown, Leeds, where he attended Leeds Grammar School. In 1972, he went to study psychology and later humanities at Bolton Institute of Technology, where one day he placed a notice saying he was looking for musicians that shared a liking for the Velvet Underground song Sister Ray. I do remember um, <clears throat> going along to the college gigs, you know, every Saturday night, and really getting very fed up of it and feeling, you know, I wish I could go and see the Stooges or something like that, something that's really going to um, be confrontational and, um, and, and aggressive and exciting and a bit dangerous. I was incredibly sick of what I was hearing and what I was reading uh, on record, on paper, in people's minds. Peter McNeish, a fellow student at the Institute, almost three years Trafford senior, responded to the notice. Well, about a couple of weeks after we met with Peter Palmer a group, we started just writing songs together. And the songs were good and we enjoyed them. And we thought, we really must get a group together proper and go out and perform these songs you know, so people can enjoy them as well. By late 1975, Trafford and McNeish had recruited drummer Mick Singleton and guitarist Garth Davies and formed a band that specialised in playing high-energy, stripped-down pop songs delivered with machine-gun-like staccato vocals. You didn't think you were going to be around very long. You didn't think you were going to make another record. You didn't really know that you were going to play another concert. And therefore, <laughs> in a way, uh, you had to do it fast. And you had to do it as directly, as directly as you could. Well, in some ways, it was in opposition. And we were glad about that because we didn't want to be the same as everybody else. But also, it was different because, because we were different. And, um, it, it just seemed to arise from the things that we were doing. Uh, that we had this feeling between us that we wanted to do something which was entertaining and exciting and actually meant something. The band formed officially in February 1976. McNeish assumed the stage name Pete Shelley, stealing the name from his favourite romantic poet, and Trafford named himself Howard Devoto. Although Devoto is Latin for bewitching, he actually took the name from a Cambridge bus driver who was mentioned in a story told to him by one of his philosophy tutors. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, 
Band Biographies is proud to present the story of Buzzcocks. Devoto and Shelley chose the name Buzzcocks after reading the headline It's a Buzzcock in a review of the TV series Rock Follies in Time Out magazine. Buzz stood for the excitement of playing on stage, and cock is a Northern English slang term meaning friend. They thought it captured the excitement of the nascent punk scene, as well as having humorous sexual connotations. After reading an NME review of the Sex Pistols' first performance, Shelley and Devoto travelled down to High Wycombe, just outside London, to see them play in February 1976. We were sat in the coffee bar at college on a Wednesday or a Thursday, whenever it was that New Musical Express came out, and um, <clears throat> I'd kind of flipped, flipped through it, given it to Pete. He looked through it, and he handed it back to me and said, did you read that? And this was the famous review of, the first ever review of the Sex Pistols by Neil Spencer. Um, Don't look over your shoulder, but the Sex Pistols are coming. Oh, whatever. And the Stooges were mentioned in there. And we're not into music, we're into chaos. There was that line in there. Well, it clicked with, clicked with me. And it just so happened I could um, borrow a car that weekend. I mean, I didn't have a car. But somebody in the house I was living in at that time, because I'd moved to Manchester by this point, had asked me to pick up their car and said, you can borrow it for the weekend. I don't think they meant you can drive to London for the weekend. But anyway, that's what Pete and I ended up doing. Um, just on the basis of reading this review and the fact I could borrow this car. And it was, you know, the weekend that uh, changed our lives. The pair were impressed by what they saw and arranged for the Pistols to come and perform in Manchester at the Bolton Institute of Technology in June. Everything about the Sex Pistols impressed at that first gig we went to at High Wycombe. The aggro of it was interesting. Um, John got into a bit of a tussle with somebody in the audience and um, kept singing under a sort of small pile of people. Then Howard was talking to Malcolm and Malcolm was saying he wanted to have a gig outside of London because all he could get was little gigs in London. I went up to Malcolm after, after they'd played and said, if we could organise for you to play um, at our college, are you interested in coming up to do it? Uh, and he said, yeah. And so the idea was that if we get something outside of London, then at least it's onwards and upwards, isn't it? <laughs> However, the Institute told them it wouldn't allow the Sex Pistols to play there, so a new venue had to be found, which led them to the Lesser Free Trade Hall. We found out we could hire the Lesser Free Trade Hall for, I think it's about £32 or something. And um, just doing the maths, we knew we got 40 people in, we'd be in profit, so it seemed like a good idea. The Lesser Free Trade Hall, as if it's some kind of curious bird, you know, like a lesser spotted auditorium or something. So that first gig for, you know, for the 4th of June, 1976, was suddenly on the cards. The Manchester Free Trade Hall was like this cathedral of conventional established sounds. And you'd see your Pink Floyds and your David Bowies and your T-Rexes, and so that was incredibly exciting. I suppose it is, after all, the only civic building that I know of that's named after a, a radical political movement, um, the Free Trade Movement, the Anti-Corn Law League. 
It's always been a place where young people and audiences have gathered in order to uh, to express themselves in one way or another. I'm, I'm, I'm referring to the the famous night in 1965 when uh, a member of the audience at the Manchester Free Trade Hall, not the Albert Hall in London, as has been commonly thought for many a long year, actually stood up and uh, accused Bob Dylan of being Judas. <sighs> Strong words in my view. This one gig is regarded as the day that punk really exploded. The most notorious punk band finally playing a gig outside of London and exposing a brand new audience who had only ever read about the Sex Pistols, if they'd heard of the band at all, to the raw power of their live show and spreading their mythology across the country. Now, lots and lots of people claim to have seen the Sex Pistols live in 1976, but in reality, hundreds of times more people saw them on their 1996 reunion tour than in their original 18-month incarnation which toured around the world. In fact, according to music journalist Dave Nolan in his book I Swear I Was There, The Gig That Changed the World, there were just 35 to 40 people rattling around in the 150 capacity venue on Peter Street on the 4th of June 1976. However, the small audience included a veritable who's who of future punk and post-punk band members, just perhaps not quite as many as people claim. In attendance that night, along with Shelley and Devoto, were Stephen Morrissey, who went on to form the massively influential indie band The Smiths, Peter Hook, who went on to form the equally acclaimed Joy Division and New Order, Mark E. Smith, who would go on to form underground stalwarts The Fall, Paul Morley, who became a music journalist and wrote about the punk scene for the NME, and possibly Tony Wilson, who at the time hosted a music and culture show on TV called So It Goes, and would later set up Factory Records, which was the home of bands like Joy Division, New Order and The Happy Mondays, as well as running the legendary club The Hacienda, both of which put Manchester on the global music map, as well as creating the Manchester scene of the 80s and 90s. That said, Wilson can't quite remember if he was at the June gig or the July one, or both. I, I would say 30 to 50 people tops were there. And the only person that I can say for sure was there is Tony Wilson, because I actually spoke to him. Was Alan at it? Fucking hell. And I spoke to him because I'd met him at, uh, I'd been to see Kiss the month before at uh, the Free Trade Hall, the big, the big hall downstairs, and they'd played in the May. So if some guy says he saw me there and we talked about the Kiss gig, that's probably very, very correct, actually. I've no, I've no strong recollection of him being at the first one. I don't actually remember him coming up to the box office or like, saying I'm on the guest list or anything like that. The only people, um, apart from Pete, myself, Steve Diggle and all the Pistols crew, I'd be reasonably certain were there were Paul Morley, Morrissey, John the Postman. John the Postman went to almost every early punk gig in Manchester and would often join the bands on stage for a sing-along. I didn't know anybody else. I mean, there was no scene then, so that was like kind of the start of it. So the only people I knew there were my immediate friends I went with. Um, like, I mean, I'm sure Tony Wilson wasn't there. It doesn't matter who was there, just the fact that there was enough people there. This period, from the lesser free trade hall gig to the collapse of factory records and the last days of the Hacienda, has been made into a film starring Steve Coogan as Wilson called 24 Hour Party People.
Mick Hucknall, later of Simply Red, is also said to have been at the Dune gig as well, although he's not mentioned in Nolan's book or in the accompanying BBC TV documentary of the same name. Either way, before starting Simply Red, he played in a punk band called Frantic Elevators that owe more to the Kinks than the Sex Pistols. But in this band, he debuted the song Holding Back the Years, which was a massive hit for Simply Red, but the Frantic Elevators version has a real country sound to it. Buzzcocks were supposed to be the opening act at this concert, but Davis and Singleton had dropped out of the band at the last minute, and Shelley and Devoto were unable to recruit other musicians in time for the gig. In the end, according to Dave Nolan's book, a prog rock band called Solstice got the gig, but never dined out on it. Possibly because prog was the antithesis of punk, but also because the band's website has them forming in 1980. Perhaps it was a band called the Mandela Band, whose members may have gone on to form Solstice. But again, it shows the amount of hearsay that surrounds this seminal gig. Because we weren't ready, we needed to draft somebody else in, and it was like, you know, to play support. Uh, and it was like, we, you know, we didn't know anybody to do that. The only thing I could remember was this guy that I'd... I think his name was Jeff, that I'd worked... Um, with the previous summer at a mail-order warehouse in Manchester. There's a band called the Mandela Band, or Mandela Band, I don't know which one it was. Um, and they're a bit hippy-trippy type thing. I think, because I never saw them because I was collecting the tickets. I'm convinced it was a group called um, Solstice, not, not the Mandela Band. I just remember uh, the guy, his name was Jeff, in this white boiler suit. The support band worried me because um, they were just a, another typical rock band playing rock music and I thought, have I wasted a Friday night here? Is this, are the Sex Pistols just going to be a, another version of this, dressed up differently? And they were like old old, complete dyed-in-the-wool, normal, deep purple-type, Led Zeppelin-type rockers. They were like, you know, the arse end of prog rock. In fact, they actually did a cover version of Nantucket Sleigh Ride by Mountain. I think they were from Eccles or Swinton or, you know, various parts of Salford, and they were dreadful. My abiding memory of the support group is that the singer had a... a I seem to recall him having a droopy moustache, but he was also sporting a love bite on his neck. They did this absolutely faithful version of the Nantucket sleigh ride by, um, by Mountain. It was the theme tune of a famous political programme which you might remember called uh, Weekend World, which was uh, hosted by Brian Walden at the time. So I knew that and I remember taking it off the telly when I was about 13. Yeah, that's a great track. So they played that one. You know, they were the most inappropriate group to really have, but in another sense, they lulled us into a false sense of security and made what was about to happen even more dramatic. It was very polite applause at first, and then they came on with them, like I say, Nantucket Sleigh Ride. You know, everybody's quite keen on that one. And then um, they shuffled off, and uh, the May night came on. Johnny Rotten ambled on, and it, that was like just a shock, just to see him, because he was one of the most frightening people I've ever seen at that time. I said to you, know, this like thousand yard stare, and just stood there, they hadn't even started playing. 
and it was as though he was just staring at me. He was probably just looking out into the audience, but I remember feeling so frightened. My friend who sat right next to me, he's a bit of a wag. Uh, and of course, the first, he shouts out, no applause as they come on stage, and he just shouts out, you're not very sexy, are you? To which John Rotten actually just shot him with this look and just looked down at him and said with this pathetic sneer and he said, why do you want some sex? My prime memory of, is of me being like that and I think everyone else was, was just like that. It was shock. It was absolutely bizarre. It was the most sort of like shocking thing I've ever seen in my life. It was just unbelievable. The sound was terrible. <laughs> waiting for this. God, it's real. Um, for me personally, as, academically, it wasn't until about the seventh number, which were, they, they did all these other numbers, and the seventh number was um, Stepping Stone. I, I, I am a step, which you can imagine Johnny singing. Um, and suddenly there, a song that you knew being done by this bunch of maniacs, um, then you began to understand what, you know, what they were actually doing. What they were doing was just playing ridiculously fast, energetic, they were just doing it, you know, and putting loads of energy and just doing it properly. And they were playing short, sharp songs. Um, even the version of uh, Stepping Stone was uh, a wonder to behold. Intimidation on legs it was. First time ever, after watching other bands um, play, then these guys came out and bang, it was there. What surprised me, we were supposed to have short hair and it's quite how long our hair is back then, you know, but it was short compared with everybody. I mean, even the cab driver had his hair, you know, just over his ears back, back then. Everybody had flares on. So, yeah, we were quite different, but it does look quite tame in, in comparison with what punks are supposed to look like these days, you know, with the hair up there and all that. That'll come later. We never see ourselves as a punk man. We hated the term punk. We were the Sex Pistols. A, a lot of people in, in hindsight say to me what they liked about them was that they were rubbish, but they didn't sound rubbish to me. They sounded magnificent. Well, it was erotically charged. The whole thing was erotic. It was just, you know, the, the funny thing is they could play really well and, and that amongst the more kind of, you know, pseudos of us was something that was important too. You know, it wasn't a shambles at all. They were very powerful. We just looked at each other and thought, my God, you know, they looked like they were having such a fantastic time and it was so alien to everything. You just thought, God, we could do that. The Pistols, or John in particular, was obviously quite pleased with the reaction they got because when he uh, when they came on and and uh, did their encore, um, you know he 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 said something to the crowd like, "Where did you all come from?" in a not unfriendly way. The Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren was aware of the plight of Shelley and Devoto, so started sniffing around the attendees at the Lesser Free Trade Hall, and eventually came across Steve Diggle. So McLaren introduced him to Shelley and Devoto. Yeah, I had arranged to meet somebody else. I'd uh, phoned this out in the paper. I really even know that I was a guitarist. I thought everybody wanted to be Richard Blackmore or somebody at the time, so people were always looking for bass players and drummers. So I thought. 
I'll go as a sort of bass player, see what happens, you know. And um, so I rang some English guy outside the Free State Hall. And um, I'm, I'm standing outside, and Malcolm McLaren comes up. He goes over there near the Sex Pistols. So um, I said, I'm waiting to meet someone, this guitarist guy, you know. He said, You must be the bass player. I thought, I don't remember anything about this, speaking to this guy on the phone. So, uh, next thing I know, he sort of, he said, uh, oh, the others are in here. So, Pete was collecting tickets on the door. So, he, he, he uh, took me in and said, uh, you know, this is Pete. And he said to Pete, here's the bass player, you know. He said, here's your new bass player. So, and he moves away from the thing and there's Steve going. Uh, so, I said, oh, well, Howard's upstairs. Um, if you go up in the bar, and I'll be up there in about five mm. minutes when we finish taking They'd put an ad in another paper, in the Manchester Review, which was like the time out for London, and uh, they'd put this ad in, and uh, they was expecting somebody else. So the person I was supposed to meet, the person they were supposed to meet, was outside. Uh, and I was inside, and... Uh, no, there was nobody meeting us. Oh, there was nobody meeting us. No, no. Yeah, no, no. there was a blank appointment. <laughs> <laughs> so the next morning, I'm up in the bar, and I said, I'd see him in the bar, and we, we was having a drink, and... So I said, so he answered the ad of the new Manchester Review, and he said, no, Manchester Evening News. I went, oh. So we had cross-purposes for about 20 minutes, and some right. things tallied and some didn't. But and we, the sex workers came, and I said, well, do you want to come and watch them? They're really good. And we went out and watched them, and then he said, well, would you fancy playing bass? So I said, yeah. So I said, well, come over tomorrow afternoon. And he came over, and we all plugged into one amp. And yeah. <laughs> This racket came out there, it's fantastic. Unfortunately, no drummers were in attendance, but McLaren told the trio that when they found one, he'd put them on a show with the Sex Pistols as soon as he could. Within six weeks, the group had enlisted 16-year-old drummer John Mayer, had practised their socks off, got back in contact with McLaren, who kept his word, and put them on the lineup for the Pistols' next Manchester gig in July. There was some controversy on the part of the Buzzcocks. Originally, they were supposed to be the sole opening act for the Pistols that night. However, another Manchester band, Slaughter and the Dogs, were put on the bill above them, relegating Buzzcocks to third on the bill and stoking a bitter rivalry between the two bands. We did travel out to Withenshaw and saw them play. Not that, not that they, they um, glammed themselves up. Um, when we went to see them play, so when they when they when Slaughter and the Dogs turned out to be kind of Bowie Roxy kids, uh, it was a bit oh oh we hadn't quite realised that about you. Mike Rossi thought that Slaughter and the Dogs was the best band in all the world, and they could get in twenty million people and sell all these tickets. I liked them. I thought they was a, f a fun kind of band. I didn't really consider them to be a punk band, although they got involved with that because that was what was going at the time. The gig, as it went, for us was just like doing a labour club, basically. Except it was a little bit bigger. This is where Bowie played. This yeah. is where Lou yeah. Reed yeah. did White Light, White Heat. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is where Mick Ronson did Slaughter on 10th Avenue. We yeah, were like, yeah, yeah. in the build, just to be under the same roof oh, as there. Yeah. When I was on stage, I could say that I knew, let's say, 80% of the people who were there. They were too cocky for me, slotting the dogs. I didn't like them. They were too arrogant. They were like real little wide boys. And uh, I remember they used to share a practice place, TJ Davidson's. Uh, and slotting the dogs used to wait for all the bands to go on, and then used to go and steal your gear. And it was quite clanny. It was quite clanny. The whole music scene was very clanny. 
and you'd come in and bleeding slightly dogs had done it again, you know, bleeding hell, and you'd have to go around and go, and they'd give you your mics back and give you your amps back, it was so, they were really annoying. They also produced their own posters um, with uh, Slaughter and the Dogs and Sex Pistols down there, which was no mention of Buzzcocks at all, um, which was sweet of them. Punk was never a, a loving world with everybody blissed out together and being jolly supportive. I mean, you know, it ain't like that in showbiz, is it? We were desperate to get onto that bill because it was, uh, the publicity was building for it and there was a lot of media interest in it. And uh, there was talk about getting the Buzzcocks out of the way, you know, and trying to find their address to go down and beat them up or something, you know, so they couldn't play. So there was, it was even going to wait outside on the night and do it, you know, but uh, we got talked out of it. This time around, rather than just a handful of people attending, the gig was sold out. Some claim, due to the addition of Slaughter and the Dogs on the bill, while others claim it was the mythos that had already started growing in the city after the June gig. This is uh, called I Can't Control Myself. One, two, three, four! A brief clip of the Devoto-era Buzzcocks performing the Trogs I Can't Control Myself appears in the Punk Attitude documentary, directed by Don Letts. We didn't really have time to be nervous. I mean, being nervous is a luxury when you got time to think. Um, I just remember Malcolm saying, if, if Buzzcocks aren't on in five minutes, they're not going on. So... Just had to get ready and run the game. Buzzcocks played, I think, was their first gig, and in fact, they had a guitar that was only half a guitar because he didn't like the top off and just cut it off with a tenon saw. The worst thing to do always is to show the audience fear because they can smell it. For me, the revelation of that, that show was Buzzcock. But I remember thinking we could do better than that. We were out there for 20 minutes and we got away with it and people clapped and, um, you know, we were in the music papers the following week. The Buzzcocks went down well with the local crowd, whereas Slaughter and the Dogs' glam look across between Roxy Music and David Bowie began turning the crowd off. My first ever punk statement was flinging peanuts at Wayne Barrett because I thought he looked like a really dodgy kind of copy of Brian Ferry or something, you know what I mean? I'd never ever been a hooligan in my life, I'd never been naughty at school, and suddenly, faced with Wayne Barrett's hair, I just had to throw something at him to say, you are inauthentic! Anyway, went off in a big fight, him and Paul Morley, trying to get everybody, come on, Manix, come on, let's get the Cockneys! <laughs> running around and all that, that was amazing. There were all these wimpy young sort of girls and blokes at the front like waving flags about as if it was a Bay City Rollers gig which me and my friends were found totally horrendous and disgusting. I'm not quite sure if it was the Buzzcocks and Slaughter and the Dogs were having a scrap at the side of the stage. It was like an Eric Morgan thing, the curtain kept flicking and somebody kept on dashing back on the other side there. Yeah, there was a, there was a big security team down there from Withenshaw. They'd probably been told to start trouble 
with there being a lot of press down there, you know, so you get the publicity going. But this just added fuel to the crowd's reaction when the Sex Pistols took to the stage again, opening with Anarchy in the UK. But when the Sex Pistols came on, it just all kicked off. As far as I can remember, it sort of broke out in serious violence and there was a lot of chair smashing and things. Because I remember them doing Anarchy and it was just like, I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a scene. I am an antichrist! If the, the, the gig in June had been the sort of detonation, then that second gig was the cloud where every, a noise where everybody knew something had, was going off. In September, McLaren invited the Buzzcocks to travel to London to perform at his two-day 100 Club Punk Festival, where they played alongside the Sex Pistols, the Damned, Susie and the Banshees, the Clash, the Vibrators, Subway Sect and the French band Stinky Toys. By the end of December, Buzzcocks had recorded a four-track EP called Spiral Scratch after scraping together £500 from friends and family to pay for the recording session. Recording took place in three hours at Indigo Sound Studios in Manchester and was produced by Martin Hannett, credited as Martin Zero. Hannett would go on to partner Tony Wilson at Factory Records and produce albums for the likes of Joy Division, Magazine, the punk poet John Cooper Clark, New Order, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and Happy Mondays. The music on Spiral Scratch was roughly recorded, insistently repetitive and energetic. For example, Boredom, probably the most well-known song on the EP, includes a guitar solo consisting of just two notes repeated 66 times, ending with a single modulated seventh. At the same time, the lyrics already showed boredom with the movement itself, such as, you know this scene is very humdrum, and... I'm already a Indeed, Devoto left the band on the eve of the record's release, saying, I get bored very easily, and that boredom can act as a catalyst for me to suddenly conceive and execute a new vocation. He added that punk rock had already become restrictive and stereotyped, saying, What was once unhealthily fresh is now a clean old hat. Did it cross your mind that when Howard left, that was the end? <laughs> Um, it may have done, but it wasn't there for very long. It was a thing where, if, it, if Howard leaving had made it the end, then it, it would have been just a waste of time as, as doing it, because there'd been nothing actually there. Uh, because he left before we actually uh, became really well known. And I thought, well, there's two things you can do. You can either get an, in another vocalist, or we can, or, or, or I can do the singing. So I thought, well, we get another vocalist, and that means a frontman, and it, it's a change the character of the whole group. So I thought, I'll do the singing. So I did. The EP was released on the 29th of January 1977 on their own New Hormones label, making them one of the first punk groups to establish an independent record label. Despite this, it quickly sold out its initial run of 1,000 copies and went on to sell 16,000, initially by mail order, but also with the help of the Manchester branch of the Virgin Music Store, whose manager took some copies and persuaded other regional branch managers to follow suit. In his book, Rip It Up and Start Again, 
Simon Reynolds claims that some consider Spiral Scratch to be a more important record than Anarchy in the UK, because where the Sex Pistols single showed that anyone could be in a rock band, a novel idea at the time, Spiral Scratch proved that anyone could release a record without needing an established record label. Reynolds also says that the EP was a regionalist blow by the Manchester band against the London-based music industry. John Savage, best known for his writings on punk, specifically the Sex Pistols, says that Spiral Scratch was instrumental in the establishment of small labels and scenes in both Manchester and Liverpool. I think no, it isn't so much like the music industry is as simulated as, it's like we've assimilated the music industry. Because, uh, well, as personally, I have a lot of control over what we do. And um, we are in charge uh, in, in lots of respects that groups weren't before. The EP is also an exercise in the demystification of the record making process. For example, its title was taken from the fact that music is recorded literally as a spiral scratch on each side of the vinyl. Also, the listing of take numbers and overdubs on the record sleeve, like underneath the track title breakdown, it says third take, no dubs, to further open up a door to people who had no idea how to make music. The release also birthed the term indie being used to describe a style of music, meaning Buzzcocks was the first indie band. The demos recorded while Devoto was in the band were later issued officially as Time's Up, long available as a bootleg. This album includes the alternative takes of all the tracks from the Spiral Scratch EP, as well as early versions of tracks that would later appear on the debut full-length album, Another Music in a Different Kitchen. After Devoto left the group, he returned to college for a year, then formed the post-punk band Magazine, with guitarist John McGeoch, then an art student, as well as Barry Adamson on bass, Bob Dickinson on keyboards, and Martin Jackson on drums. This lineup would survive just one year. Martin Jackson left, replaced on drums by Paul Spencer for a while and then eventually by John Doyle, and Bob Dickinson was replaced by Dave Formula. John McGeoch left in 1980 to join Susie and the Banshees and was replaced on guitar by Robin Simon for a time and then Ben Mendelsohn. The band split in 1981 after releasing four albums and then was resurrected in 2009 with largely the same lineup until the inevitable split again in 2011. I mean, he did about nine gigs with us or something and then we'd done Spiral Scratch and he yeah. said... Uh, you said I want to leave now, you know. Yeah. And uh, we were sat like this on a couch and said, we shocked for about half a minute and then said we'll carry yeah. on, yeah. Okay. So, uh, I mean, because he always wanted to play guitar. So, <laughs> right. yeah. That was, I mean, yeah, that was good as well. Player. And I had a thing called Garfield. I mean, it was a shock, but it was the right decision now, looking back, because you yeah. had the buzzer. I don't know where he would have gone if he'd have stuck around, really. Yeah. I mean, he started the group in a sense, you know, with people. But, uh, right. Yeah, I could move over to yeah. guitar, so we had that other guitar yeah. interaction going yeah. on, which yeah. took it on with the, what used to be on the classic lineup at that point, you know. Yeah. And uh, took it to that other level, you know. And it was more, I don't know, we could rock more, you know. Howard was, it's quite internal and that, you know, Spiral Scratch. I don't know where we would have gone from there, but... Yeah. Uh, so by him leaving, did us a favour, it did me a favour so I could move on with the guitar. guitar and yeah. So that, I felt a lot better, because I wasn't a bass player, you know, I was a fraud really, was a bass player, but right. it right. put it into disarray, you know, yeah. for, for that little time, but it, it was the right thing to do, really. Plus the fact, we got magazine, yeah. magazine, so... 
No, it was his decision and uh, he was happy. I, I don't think he would have lasted the course either, really. I think he might have got a bit weird for him. Yeah. It's weird people like to go to the pub and have a drink now and again and stuff like that and Howard's <laughs> not kind of one of those people. Really. <laughs> so, I don't know. Well, I did remember once, yeah. Usually <laughs> <laughs> used the oldest food. <laughs> Six months it came for once. He used the oldest something to eat. Sensibly. In Buzzcocks, Pete Shelley took on main vocal duties. His style and high-pitched melodic singing stood in stark contrast to the gruff vocal stylings of many of his contemporaries. Shelley told Melody Maker in 1978, I won't be nasty, we're just four nice lads, the kind of people you could take home to your parents. Diggle switched from bass to guitar, and Garth Davies, aka Garth Smith, rejoined on bass, albeit temporarily. While Davis appeared on the live various artists compilation albums The Roxy London W2 and Short Circuit Live at the Electric Circus, as well as the band's first Radio 1 Peel session, which was broadcast in September 1977, and the first two singles which were released later, his alleged unreliability due to alcohol problems led to his expulsion from the band. In 1980 he moved to New York and joined the band Dirty Looks. He remains playing bass and double bass to this day in two Lancashire bands, once young with Tony and Pete and Moondogs. Petrol station worker Steve Garvey replaced Davis on bass in Buzzcocks, and this new lineup signed with United Artists Records at Manchester's Electric Circus on the 16th of August 1977, the same day Elvis Presley died. Well, you tried it just for once, found it all right for kicks. But now you find out that it's a habit that sticks and you're an orgasm addict. The first Buzzcock single released on the 4th of November by United Artists, Orgasm Addict, was a playful examination of compulsive sexuality that was and remains uncommonly bold. Because when we decided what tracks were to go on Spiral Scratch, yeah. the one track which didn't get on was um, Orgasm Addict. Right. We thought, no, we'll leave that for another single. And originally we were going to do our own single, but we spent all the money we made by doubling up and doubling up with the singles on uh, doing the White Right term. Mm -hmm. And so when we came around to doing the, um, the first single for United Artists, that was our number one first choice. It was mm -hmm. all at it. We want to do that for our single. Mm -hmm. And to Andrew Lauder's uh, infinite wisdom, he went, yeah, we'll let you do what you want. That's yeah. why you, that's why we right. signed you. Yeah. you know? yeah. You know, we just want to help you do what you want. The BBC refused to play the song due to its lyrical content, and it did not sell well. In an interview that was included in the book 1001 Songs You Must Hear Before You Die by Robert Dimery, Pete Shelley said that the song is embarrassing. It's the only one I listen to and shudder. The single Sleeve was devised by graphic designer Malcolm Garrett and featured a collage created by artist Linda Sterling, depicting a woman whose head is a clothes iron. Regarding the concept, Sterling explained, the iron came from an Argos catalogue and the female torso came from a photographic magazine called Photo. I never cleared the copyright, but no one noticed, so it was all right. It was made in a Salford bedroom. I had a sheet of glass, a scalpel and piles of women's mags. The image was originally in colour, but the record company specified the sleeve could be printed in only two colours, so Garrett changed it to a blue monotone. Garrett would later design album and single sleeves for bands including Magazine, Simple Minds, Peter Gabriel and Boy George, but his most famous artwork graced the covers of Duran Duran's most famous albums like Duran Duran, Rio, Seven and the Ragged Tiger and Arena, as well as their singles. 
He is now creative director of London-based communications design consultancy Images & Co, as well as ambassador of Manchester School of Art and co-founder of the Design Manchester Festival. Later in their career, more ambiguous songs explored more nuanced sexual territory as defined by Shelley's bisexuality and Punk's aversion to serious examination of human sexuality. I just wanna love her like any other, what do I get? The next single, which had been recorded in the same session as Orgasm Addict at TW Studios in Fulham in September 1977, What Do I Get, reached number 37 in the UK singles chart after it was released on the 3rd of February 1978. Between December 1977 and January 78, the group recorded its debut album with producer Martin Rushant in Olympic Studios in London. Expanding on the band's themes of confusion, alienation and betrayal, the subject matter in the group's songs on this record also place emphasis on harmony and humour. It's also obvious that the band has grown in musical ability and coordination. The album's title, Another Music in a Different Kitchen, was inspired by a collage by Linda Sterling. According to Shelley, we were trying to think up titles for Linda's montages, and Howard, who was living with her at the time, said, Another housewife stews in her own juice in a different kitchen. We shuffled it around a bit, and it came out like that. It's like an extension of Dada, where you get a meaningless phrase and you free associate with it to find out what it actually means. And it gets a meaning, and then you do the meaning. However, rather than using one of Linda's collages, the sleeve was designed again by Malcolm Garrett. The original UK vinyl release was issued with a black cardboard inner sleeve, using a colour photo by Jill Fermanovsky on the front cover, where one of Linda's images had originally been intended to appear. Subsequent pressings featured a black and white photo. The initial few thousand copies were shipped in a matching silver plastic shopping bag, with the word product printed in bold on one side and the catalogue number UAG30125 on the other. Displaying the catalogue number prominently in this way was a common feature of Buzzcock's artwork, which was later picked up and taken on by Factory Records, where everything it produced had the catalogue number included in the album art in some way. This first pressing inadvertently gave a songwriting credit for Fast Cars to Shelley and Devoto, when Steve Diggle claimed he wrote 90% of the song, which is about a car crash in which he was involved. The album was originally conceived with the track I Need on side one, but after a test pressing was made, the group felt the song should appear on the second side instead. But a mix-up at the pressing plant meant that some early copies of the album didn't contain the song at all. After its release on the 10th of May 1978, the album peaked at number one on the UK Albums chart. In 2006, another music in a different kitchen was included in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. In a retrospective review for BBC Music in 2010, the critic David Quantic named it as his favourite album of all time and wrote everything about it from its silver orange lettered sleeve to Martin Rushant's aluminium sheen production is right. The first single from the album, I Don't Mind, was released on the 14th of April and charted at number 55 following the seven minute long moving away from the pulse beat which, due mainly to its incredible running time, failed to chart. On the 30th of June the band released a standalone single, Love You More, 
which had been recorded at Abbey Road Studios and did considerably better than the singles that preceded it, reaching number 34. It's also the shortest single the band has produced to date, clocking in at an incredibly brief 1 minute and 47 seconds, and also provided the band with its first appearance on Top of the Pops. Directly after this, less than six months after the release of the first album, Buzzcocks went into Olympic Studios in London and recorded the follow-up, Love Bites, in two and a half weeks between July and August with Martin Rushant once more. The hand-drawn script on the album sleeve is a reference to the paintings This Is Not A Pipe and The Empty Mask by Belgian surrealist artist René Magritte. The sleeve insert airbrush illustrations are by Robin Utrecht who played guitar in the underground Manchester punk band The Worst. In a retrospective review, BBC music critic Chris Jones described it as an essential purchase for anyone remotely interested in punk's history. In 2012, all music reviewer Ned Raggett wrote, more musically accomplished, more obsessively self-questioning and with equally energetic yet sometimes gloomy performances, Love Bites finds the buzzcocks coming into their own. The album, which peaked at number 13 after its release on the 22nd of September, shows further improvements in Shelley's songwriting. Despite the number of extremely repetitive songs on the album, it's one, and probably the band's best-known single, Ever Fallen In Love With Someone You Shouldn't Have, which was released slightly earlier in September, is still the band's highest chart entry at number 12 in the UK and number 14 in Ireland. Shelley had written the lyrics to the song in November 1977, while Buzzcocks were on a headline tour of the UK. Before a gig at The Clouds, also known as the Cavendish Ballroom in Edinburgh, they stayed the night. Shelley later recalled to Ian Pope of the Edinburgh Evening News in 2018, We were in the Blenheim Guesthouse with pints of beer, sitting in front of the TV, half-watching Guys and Dolls. One of the characters, Adelaide, is saying to Marlon Brando's character, Wait till you fall in love with someone you shouldn't have. I thought, falling in love with someone you shouldn't have? Hmm, that's good. The following day, Shelley wrote the lyrics in a van outside the post office on nearby Waterloo Place. In the interview, Shelley said that the song was about a man named Francis Cookson that he lived with for about seven years. According to music critic Mark Deming, the lyrics owe less to adolescent self-pity than the more adult realisation of how much being in love can hurt and how little someone can really do about it. The song was ranked at number one among tracks of the year for 1978 by NME. Since then, among all the bands that have covered this song, including hundreds of thousands of covers bands, no doubt, the most successful version was recorded in 1986 by another British band, Fine Young Cannibals, which charted in 10 countries around the world, including at number 9 in the UK, 10 in Ireland, and number 1 in South Africa. Around this time in 1978, Shelley set up a more experimental band with Eric Random and Francis Cookson called the Tiller Boys that supported Joy Division a couple of times and recorded one single, Big Noise from the Jungle, on Factory Records.
However, Factory didn't release the single, so Shelley released it on New Hormones after the group disbanded in 1979. At the same time, Garvey co-founded the Teardrops with Trevor Wayne, John Key, Jimmy Donnelly and various members of The Fall, including Mark Brahma, Carl Burns and Tony Friel. The Teardrops recorded their debut EP, In and Out of Fashion, at Cargo Studios. But due to contractual difficulties with The Fall, Brahma and Burns weren't allowed to be credited on the record sleeve. By the end of 1978, Garvey had to commit to the Buzzcocks, meaning he didn't feature on the recordings that would become the band's only album, Final Vinyl, released in January 1980. By the end of 1980, the teardrops stopped recording and broke up. Amongst this, Buzzcocks undertook a solid year of touring the UK, Ireland and the rest of Europe and released three further standalone singles. Promises is a forlorn sounding song about betrayal which reached number 20 in the UK upon its release on the 17th of November 1978. Lipstick, the B-side to Promises, shared the same ascending progression of notes in its chorus as Magazine's first single, Shot by Both Sides, also released in 1978. Everybody's Happy Nowadays is a slightly more upbeat sounding song with just a hint of tension in the falsetto chorus which really comes to the fore in the almost spoken verses and middle eight where the lyrics repeat Life's an illusion, love is a dream. Released on the 2nd of March 1979, it peaked at number 29. The third single, Harmony in My Head, was released on the 13th of July 1979 and was the first to feature Diggle on lead vocals, who leads with an uncharacteristically gruff vocal performance, which he said required him to smoke 20 cigarettes before entering the vocal booth to achieve. Ex-Black Flag singer Henry Rollins used the song's title as the name of a radio show he began hosting in 2004 on LA radio station Indy 103.1. Rollins stated in his book, Fanatic, that Harmony In My Head is his favourite Buzzcocks song. The single was the first thing he played on the very first episode of the show, and when Rollins relaunched the show after a short hiatus on the 27th of December 2005, he used a live recording of the same song to open that show. The single eventually reached number 32 on the UK singles chart after its release. September 1979 saw the release of an eight-track singles collection, as well as the band's third studio album. The singles collection, Singles Going Steady, was released on the 25th of September 1979 and was their first album available to go on sale in North America on IRS Records and was intended to introduce the band to a wider global audience, slightly ahead of their first US tour. 
The album included all eight singles in chronological order on the A side of the LP and the corresponding B sides in chronological order on the B side. However, despite healthy import sales back into the UK, the album was eventually released as a greatest hits on the 16th of November 1981, but failed to chart on either side of the Atlantic. Reviewing the album on import in 1979, NME called Buzzcocks a vital part of the inspiration for the new pop age. This is the best album Buzzcocks have ever made. Hear it and weep. A second review by the NME two years later upon the album's official UK release as the greatest hits was no less enthusiastic, declaring that this is the best Buzzcocks long player to be released, enshrining eight singles and their B-sides in a compilation which at a stroke helps to forgive the inconsistency of their other albums and clarifies the enormous debt which post-Buzzcocks pop owes to this frail practitioner referring to Buzzcock's principal songwriter and singer Pete Shelley. Employing the most traditional of beat group formations and turning their attention to the most elemental considerations, Shelley and the Buzzcocks created pop of such intense truthfulness, it literally hurts. Also in 1981, Melody Maker claimed that to describe it as wonderful would be doing the lads a gross injustice. Somehow they devised a simple, crude, but hugely effective medium for songs which were fast, funny and memorable. Are you not surprised that the great bored, blank generation are now into love songs a la Piccelli? No, because I, I, think, I think after you've got bored and you find something to do, then you start concentrating on things like being in love, and I think that's through all, all the time. I, mean, I think people have more things to do than just talk about how bored they are. And uh, I think falling in love is one of the things that most people do. In 2012, the album was ranked at number 360 in Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. The Spiral Scratch EP was reissued in the UK in 1979 after having been discontinued when Buzzcocks signed to United Artists in 77. Remaining on the new Hormones label, but credited to Buzzcocks with Howard DeVoto, the record was distributed by Virgin Records and reached number 31 in the charts, staying on for six weeks. Consequently, none of the tracks on Spiral Scratch appeared on any of the compilation albums, either Singles Going Steady, Product or Operator's Manual, Buzzcocks Best. Slightly later in September, a different kind of tension was released. It had been recorded with producer Martin Rushant at Eden Studios in Kingston-upon-Thames, was mixed at Genetic Sound in Berkshire, and mastered by George Peckham at Portland Recording Studio in London. The extra work that was put into the recording of this album really shows in the quality of the songs. The album sleeve features a photograph of the band by Jill Fermanovsky, amongst a montage of triangles. This continued the artistic theme established by Martin Garrett on the covers of Another Music in a Different Kitchen, which featured squares, and Love Bites, which featured circles. Mikhail Gilmore of Rolling Stone felt that the album suffered from repetitiveness, resulting in a catch-all of reworks, riffs and static similar tempos, but nonetheless praised it as the Buzzcocks' most formidable record yet. In a retrospective review in 2010, Rolling Stone's John Dolan continued the praise of his predecessor, 
calling a different kind of tension the best of the band's first three albums. In a 2008 review, Uncut magazine was less ecstatic, observing that the album was divided between an unsurprisingly punk-flavoured first half and an experimental second half which harkened to the future. The album reached number 26 on the UK Albums chart and was the band's first album to make the charts in the US, reaching 163 in the US Billboard 200. The album produced two singles, You Say You Don't Love Me, which suffered from being released on the same week as the album, so failed to chart. In these times of contention, it's not my intention to make this I Believe was released in February 1980. The song on the album clocks in at 7 minutes and 9 seconds. This was massively cut for the single release to just under 3.5 minutes. But again, despite the song's catchy, bouncy rhythm, it too failed to chart. Over the rest of that year, Buzzcocks recorded and released three more singles. The double A-side, Are Everything and Why She's the Girl from the Chain Store, which reached number 61 in the UK in August. The second double A-side, Strange Thing, which was sung by Shelley and incorporated a cello played by George Bourne, was released on the 13th of October. Always Dream, the second song, was sung by Diggle and included a brass section. It failed to chart, as did the third single in December, Running Free and What Do You Know, the latter of which also featured a brass section. The band began recording demos for a fourth album at the beginning of 1981, but the pace of recording and touring over the years was taking its toll on the band and was bringing out tension between the members themselves. The final nail in the coffin, though, was the friction between the band and its new record company, EMI, which had recently bought United Artists. Why not? They come in fun and fresh. <laughs> when the acid was kicking in, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, as we are doing the parts one to three, the last three singles, mm -hmm. that's when things really started getting very seriously <laughs> out of order. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, uh, the record company had been taken over by EMI, so we didn't have Andrew Lauder or Tim Chagsfield there to indulge us. And uh, the people who took it over were more like, you've not had any hit singles recently, have you? So it's actually it all becoming a bit. At, at that point, it was a different A&R man every week. You'd mm. communicate with one, and it's like, oh, he's not here now, it's a new one. My name's right. going to take you for a meal and all this stuff. So, right. so it's for it, yeah. I don't hear any hits. And, and the last three singles we did, or the, the batch of six songs, uh, we wasn't thinking in terms of hit singles, was it? Mm. So I, I don't yeah. think we ever really did. <laughs> no, we still want to make music people don't like. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, you know, they got in the 40s rather than in the 20s and 12s and all that stuff. So, yeah. and like you said, they was and going suddenly there was pressure. I don't hear a hit there, but we're, we're, we're the buzzcocks. We just make music for right. people that, you know, want to buy it. It's up to you to sell the records. That's <laughs> your <laughs> job. We just make them. Yeah. We make yeah. stuff for you to sell. If you can't sell enough, don't blame us. So there was that. And five years of uh, going around the world, you know, we went to America a lot towards the end, and uh, 
That was uh, that you know, really so. freaked me out. <laughs> EMI refused to give the band an advance for its forthcoming album, which put further strain on Buzzcock's already difficult financial situation. Seeing the disintegration coming, Russian called a halt to the recording sessions on the 9th of February, and the band called it a day after just five years. Garvey formed a band called Motivation in 1981, as well as joining another Manchester band called Blue Orchids, which had been set up by ex The Fall and The Teardrops member Martin Brahma, and christened inadvertently by punk poet John Cooper Clarke. However, in 1983, he and vocalist Dave Price relocated briefly to New York, where he was forced to change the name of Motivation to Shy Talk when the band was signed to Columbia Records in the US. They released an eponymous album in 1985, which was produced by Procol Harum's Pete Solly. At this time, the lineup consisted of Price on vocals, Michael Nera on guitar, Phil Garmin on bass, David Bravo on keyboards, and John Morelli on drums. Garvey is thanked in the album credits, but did not perform on the album itself. Diggle and Mayer went off and formed Flag of Convenience in 1982 with bassist Dave Farrow and keyboard player DP. The band released two studio albums, seven singles, as well as a further single and two compilation albums after they broke up in 1989. Through their first two lineups, they were managed by the writer and music critic Michael Gray, just after he'd finished managing Jerry Rafferty. The band's first single was produced by Rafferty's co-producer Hugh Murphy. Flag of Convenience continued with changing lineups until 1989, with later incarnations releasing records under the names of FOC and Buzzcocks FOC. The final incarnation of the band included former member of the Stone Roses, guitarist Andy Cousins, and former Inspiral Carpets drummer Chris Goodwin, both of whom went on to form The High. Flag of Convenience ended when Diggle joined Shelley in a reformed Buzzcocks, the reunion prompted by controversy over the use of Buzzcocks in the billing of Diggle's band, Buzzcocks FOC. In a review of the Best Of compilation, The Secret Public Years 1981-1989, all music described the later FOC work as proof that Diggle was one of the most important and overlooked artists in all of Britain during the 1980s. Shelley had already recorded a solo album called Sky Yen back in 1974 while he was in college, before Buzzcocks had even been formed. It was an experiment in electronic music and simply consisted of two tracks, each 20 minutes long, taking up each side of a 12-inch vinyl. Shelley created the soundscape using a single electronic oscillator and an added potentiometer to change the pitch, manipulating playback speed to achieve the experimental sound. 
He discovered that by putting his fingers in the oscillator, which, running on a 9-volt battery, he did not deem a risk, he would actually become part of the circuit, explaining that the sound would be affected by the sweat on his fingers or which bits you'd randomly touch, and thus creating weird tones. He later said, I became another resistance, and so had a touch-sensitive way of coming up with really weird things. Shelley recorded the album on a Saturday morning on the device in his living room while utilising a two-track stereo recorder. He later explained, I just wired it all up and started messing about, changing the speed and the pitch, and built up this thing. He subsequently added echo and other effects until he reached the desired effect. The album was directly influenced by Krautrock acts Tangerine Dream and Cluster. Shelley said, I used to listen to John Peel. He was always playing a whole side of Phaedra and stuff like that. Buzzcocks biographer Tony McGartland notes the album highlights the influence of Krautrock bands like Kraftwerk, Can and Faust. James McMahon of The Quietus also highlights shades of John Cage. Trouser Press described Sky Yen as a primitive electronic drone album. Brainwashed writer John Keeley notes, It's hard to truly pin it down as it never settles into the easy drones that many krautrock groups often employ. The album is fully instrumental and the oscillations throughout the record are distorted and primitive in style. The music is aggressive in tone and incorporates tones that go on for longer than is comfortable, according to Keeley. The first half of Sky Yen features high-pitched waveforms, some of which hold for a lengthy period, forming a relentless resonant backbone. The second half of the album, Keeley says, has more in common with air raid sirens than music. In the years after completing Sky Yen, Shelley would listen to it in headphones while laying in the dark, and also play it to guests, describing it as great at clearing out parties. According to Shelley, he would play the tapes just for himself, until, when he started his label, thought, why not put this out? There were already British and American acts called Sky, so Shelley added Yen after he noticed he was labelling the tapes with a Japanese tape marker using the Yen symbol. The album's Sky Blue Sleeve was designed to resemble graph paper, and the album sold out its original run of 1,000 copies, but it surprised and puzzled his fans upon its release on the 24th of April 1980, a year before the split of the Buzzcocks. His fans, not unreasonably, expected pop music, and the album received a hostile reception. In August 1980, Sounds magazine opened its negative review of the album with the words, Poor Pete Shelley. Seattle Public Radio Station KEXP-FM described the album as oscillating madness. In a 1989 review, David Sprague of Spin commented that the self-indulgent album sounded more like a mosquito dive-bombing a cheap tube amp than anything else. However, Sky Yen has built up acclaim in the years since its release, and more positive critical attention has greeted the album in retrospect. In a 2002 review, critic Dave Thompson described Shelley's oscillator experiments on the album as sufficient, and counted the record alongside works by The Future, Cabaret Voltaire and Thomas Lear, in that all were stepping out in one form or another and looking too towards an icy electronic future. In 2010, Sam Adams of the AV Club wrote that the album's sidelong electronic drones exemplified Shelley's experimental music background, which was later evident in Buzzcock songs like I Believe and Moving Away From The Pulse Beat. 
John Keeley of Brainwashed wrote in 2012 that although Sky Yen is a far cry from the short, choppy punk Shelley is best known for, it is just as engaging as his more famous efforts. He felt that the album cleansed his ears in a way rarely achieved by any medical intervention, and felt the album was suitable for when I need to clear the cobwebs from my mind. Jed Bodoin of Pop Matters also wrote in 2012 that the album sounds like a dentist drill on an expressway to your skull, while some sinister someone submerges your hand in ice-cold water and a dancing clown appears to do birthday magic tricks for you. He felt Sky Yen was a real gem for the noise enthusiasts, but noted what he felt was the absence of any true compositions across its two 20-minute tracks. Writing in 2016, Jed Baby of Louder Than War felt that Sky Yen was hugely non-commercial given Shelley's recognition as a pop lyricist in a punk band and compared him to Lou Reed, describing it as Shelley's metal machine music, though he felt the album's drones, oscillations and wail noises would test listeners' patience and clear the room at any party successfully. He felt that the record was brave, uncompromising and fucked music which was way ahead of its time. Stephen Thomas Erlewine of AllMusic called the album a curiosity for devoted fans, especially since the primitive droning electronics recall krautrock, not punk rock. Trouser Press highlighted the simplistic production setup and called the album a collector's item of minor interest. Sky Yen was re-released on the 6th of September 2011 as part of a reissue of the full Groovy Records catalogue. The album also featured alongside other Groovy albums in a 2012 box set called The Total Groovy. Groovy Records also released the soundtrack LP Hangar Har by Shelley Timms and Lindsay Lee in 1980, which included Shelley as a musician, and an album by a band called Free Agents. These three albums were the only records that Groovy Records released in its brief history. Between February and August 1981, right after Buzzcock split, Russian suggested that he and Shelley go to his newly built genetic sound studios in Berkshire, where he had equipped his new studio with the latest electronic equipment, to work on ideas from the aborted session with Buzzcocks, as well as some of the electronic tracks he'd half-written before starting the band. These sessions produced Homo Sapien, Shelley's second solo album where he returned to his original interests in electronic music, shifting emphasis from guitar to synthesizer. Homo superior in my interior, but from the skin I Russian's elaborate drum machine and synthesizer programming on Homo Sapien laid the groundwork for his next production, the chart-topping album Dare by the Human League. Shelley and Russian grew enormously fond of the sound they were creating in the studio, which featured a blend of drum machines, synthesizers and sequences coupled with guitars. I was just doing demos for the new Buscox album and uh, I decided to use the guitar there, 12 string and we had all this computer equipment. So we started using it just to, you know, give us a drum beat and a thing. And before we knew it, we were going, this sounds great. This. But that's the reason why it, was, it seemed like a laptop. But I was always interested in bands like Kraftwerk. And there's a lot of like, the German bands. So, I mean, I don't need the Scorpions. All the German bands, like Cam and Nord. And so they were the bands which were um, you know, I had a bit of attitude to 
as well as making all these weird noises. But this was the challenge, and this is where we thought we did it right. For some people, I mean, you tend to think of cold sound because you think of like some someone like Gavin Newman. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all it was, all, but it, it was that bleak thing. You know, and you know from the mid seventies, David Bowie was doing it in his love, in his Berlin period. You know, um, so there was lots of electronic music done like that. You know, and of course Graffo, you know, we are robots. Um, it didn't have to be like that. You could actually make music with it, and you could sing songs with these just different sounds, which tends to shock people, but uh, at the same time that was very exciting because the fact that you could do something with it. Well, no, it is when you use electronics, uh, nobody notices because it sounds like something playing, really. I mean, I entered into it, I mean, I'm interested in, in melody and, and lyrics. You know. So for me, a song has to have those kind of things. For other people, no, it doesn't. And it, you know, I'm not much of a dancer, I'm not a dancer at all. Um, and so, but for me, it wasn't done as being somebody who was dancing and going, oh yes, this is what, yeah, but this is what's happening, I'll do that. Um, we were just like working in a, a studio and coming up with these ideas and thinking, this is great, this, and then letting other people listen to them and then they're like, oh, that's, that's great, we could play that in, uh, in our clubs. <laughs> Talking to the NME in November, ahead of the album's release, Shelley said, We came here in February to record demos, but as we started to do them, they sounded more and more finished, so we nudged them in that direction. And within a few months, we'd come up with three finished tracks, just me and Martin in the studio with all the machines. These demos were passed around to some record companies, and Island Records offered him a solo contract. The lead single and title track from the album, Homo Sapien, was banned by the BBC for explicit references to gay sex, featuring lyrics like, Homo superior in my interior. Consequently, the single failed to chart in the UK. However, it was a big hit in Australia and Canada, reaching number 4 and 6 respectively, as well as reaching number 11 in New Zealand. Although it failed to cross over to singles charts, it was a popular dance track in clubs across Europe and in the United States, and reached number 14 on the Billboard Club Party Singles chart there. Shelley talked openly about his bisexuality at this time, which had been implicit in many of the songs he had written, but now came to wider attention due to Homo Sapien and the BBC ban. In an interview with Pitchfork in 2009, he said that other punk bands didn't seem to bat an eyelid about his sexuality because the idea of what people know, or the stereotype of a punk, hadn't been formed. People think it was all, ah, and angry and violent, but it was really about people enjoying themselves and making things happen. The follow-up single, I Don't Know What It Is, was released on the 13th of November but failed to chart despite its frantic, relentless energy and more than a passing resemblance to some of David Bowie's more electronic work. The album was released in the US first due to contractual issues in the UK. It had originally been scheduled for release on the 28th of August and then again on the 16th of November 1981, but Homo Sapien finally received a UK release on the 15th of January 1982. Released at the start of the home computer boom, the album cover featured Shelley in a stylized office leaning against a Commodore PET computer. 
critical reaction to the album at this time was mixed, with some reviewers disappointed by Shelley's move away from guitars to synthesizers, as well as what they perceived as the lightweight nature of the songs. NME said that Homo Sapien is the first chance to examine the solo Shelley over the full range of interests and emotions, but it is a disjointed album. The problem is the bulk of the raw material is too ineffectual, often embarrassing and half-realised. To give the songs a focal point which binds, injects or drives them with the necessary conviction or resolution, it lacks energy, urgency and desperation, something to grab onto, the power to wake you or make you or shake you up. A shame, because Shelley still has a lot to give. Melody Maker was more positive, believing that by leaving behind mass guitars and thunderous drums, Shelley and Russian have evolved a richer and more varied dictionary of sounds. If it doesn't always convince, it's persuasive enough to warrant long-term investment. Modern reviewers have been more favourable towards the album, considering it to be Shelley's best solo effort. Allmusic said, despite the utterly ridiculous drum machine sound, it's the one Shelley solo effort worth investigating. Unlike XL1 and Heaven and the Sea, the wry lovelorn pop songwriting inspiration is still with him. But more importantly, this is the one attempt by Shelley to retain the compressed, tight, hard production and vocals of his band work. Despite the new genre and the predominance of a 12-string acoustic in favour of the old buzzsaw. However, Q felt, apart from the title song, too many tracks sound like Depeche Mode offcuts, which, from my point of view, is not exactly a bad thing. Shelley and Russian released XL1, their second album, in May 1983. It reached number 42 in the UK Albums chart and remained on the chart for four weeks. The single Telephone Operator charted at number 66 in the UK Singles chart, making it Shelley's biggest solo single release in his home country. Its second single, Millions of People, Not One Like You, which included more prominent guitars that gave it a more edgy, captivating sound. But despite this, it only charted at number 94 in the UK. The album was originally released with a computer program for the ZX Spectrum, which featured lyrics and graphics which displayed in time with the music. In June 1984, Shelley released the single Never Again, followed by the album Heaven and the Sea in 1986. The album as a whole isn't quite as dance-oriented as Shelley's first two albums, nor does it have the nervous pop energy that was a hallmark of those records and his work with the Buzzcocks. Instead, it's a layered and textured release, given a polished, mature production, which ironically only emphasises the lack of notable songs. There are a handful of relatively strong cuts on the record, but even they don't match the high points of its two predecessors. The album spawned a further four singles, none of which troubled the charts except On Your Own, which reached number 10 on the US dance chart.
1987, he released a standalone single, Do Anything, from the soundtrack for the film Some Kind of Wonderful. He also composed the theme music for the intro to Channel 4's coverage of the Tour de France, which was used from the late 1980s to mid-1990s. Shelley recorded a new version of Homo Sapien called Homo Sapien 2 in 1989. This single featured four mixes of the new recording. Buzzcocks reformed in 1989, featuring the classic lineup of Shelley, Diggle, Mayer, and Garvey for a world tour. There were rumours, uh, because Steve changed the, the name, well, a promoter in Germany changed the name of the band to Buzzcocks FOC. You know, to get people come you know, to recognise that it was Steve from Buscox. And uh, through that, there were rumours circulating around that we were getting back together because people had heard stories of people coming from Europe and saying, oh, I saw, I saw Buscox the other day. And uh, our agent in the States said, but why haven't you been in touch? You know, I, I want to do a tour if Buscox are back together. You know, let's do a tour. And so, well, they're not back together yet, but uh, what, you know... Have you sold out the yeah. tour? So there's a nice three-week tour, and it was just before Christmas, and I didn't have anything else to do, so I said, yeah, go on, I'll, I'll go along with it. Only if we can get everybody back together and split up. Phone everybody round, and everybody said, yeah, yeah, three weeks, yeah, I can make that, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, it was really good, because amazing enough, the uh, flag of convenience thing I was doing, a couple of people had left and all that, and uh, a couple of disagreements with the guitarist, and uh, so I thought, well, We've got to start that up, and then this phone call came, and uh, so I said, well, do that for three weeks, and then I'll go back to what I was doing. <laughs> but um, the greatest thing was, uh, I mean, I'd all seen Pete on and off in a club here and there, but I hadn't seen the others, and we hadn't all been in a room together for eight years, so we didn't know what to expect, really. And uh, I think we did about two songs, and then me and Pete went to the bar, you know. <laughs> and that, that was where the important work was done, and I think we drank for two days, and the other two couldn't believe it. <laughs> And then we were on the place. So much. Yeah. And we had a great time. And uh, next morning we're on the stage uh, in the states, and uh, we don't really rehearse this stuff, and it was fantastic. Yeah. Right. The whole thing came flooding back. Now. After the tour, Mayer and Garvey were happy enough to return to their post-Buzzcox lives. Garvey moved to Pennsylvania, where he founded a record label called New Hope Sound and Vision, and Mayer went back to his performance engine manufacturing business, John Mayer Racing, after a stint drag racing VW Beetles. Briefly, Smith's drummer Mike Joyce was drafted in to replace Mayer. Then, in 1992, Tony Barber joined on bass and Phil Barker on drums. And in 1993, this lineup recorded a new album called Trade Test Transmission, 14 years after the band's last album was released. Trade Test Transmission was released on the 2nd of June 1993 by the Castle record label. The album was generally well received by critics. Pitchfork's Jason Crock's review was generally favourable, although he did write, the album remains a strictly die-hards only affair. CMJ's Tim Stegall qualified it as a superb record which oddly got lost in the shuffle. 
There's a sense of unfulfilled promise though, specifically in the way that Shelley and Diggle drew more on the strictly listener-friendly touch of the band's original days, while generally ignoring the more adventurous side of songs like Late for the Train, Why Can't I Touch It, and I Believe. It's not quite pandering per se, but it's almost too easy an approach for a band that so clearly transcended the punk pop formula as much as it perfected it. This aside, Trade is definitely enjoyable on its own terms with a number of songs, Innocent, Smile, The Diggle Penned and Sung Isolation and Alive Tonight, near equal to many of the early singles. Palm of Your Hand is an updated orgasm addict for the 90s that celebrates the joys of mutual masturbation. Although no singles were released from this album, the band went on a relentless touring schedule, including as the opening act on one of Nirvana's last ever tours in 1994. Nirvana, you know, they had the number one album single and we was playing in Boston and they turned up with a gig and we was doing a tour called the Trade Test Transmissions Tour where we had like, uh, you know, about 10 uh, uh, televisions showing this uh, collage of uh, video footage. But at the end of the set, we picked the mic stand up and smashed all the, uh, the television. We went through thousands of them on these tours, and uh, he, he really liked that. You know, he said, "I like the, you know, I like the way you smash the televisions, man, and all that stuff." So I nearly got electrocuted at one place. You know, uh, so it was an old solid mic stand, and it went through the TV set. If you hit the wrong place, you know, you get a hell of a shot. You know, and I, I couldn't let go of it at one point. You know, and I, it's nearly dead. Luckily, it didn't hit the most crucial bit where yeah, I've gone up in smoke. So after that I perfected the art of throwing the mic stand like that, letting it hit the screen, tap the screen and then it implodes and all the smoke and all the thing comes out. Right, so there's an know. art to it. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. an art to it. It took, it took a long time so he you said you graciously passed this on to, to Kurt. So I passed it on I said if you're doing it in the future because he said I remember smashing a TV set man and it was great you know. I said I've been doing it for about three months now on this tour you know. Yeah. And I said I perfected the art of it and showing him how to do it. So we like that, yeah. <laughs> The constant touring brought the band members closer together. In fact, this lineup had been playing and touring together for longer than the original 1970s lineup had. This experience had stoked the creative fires and inspired them to write a new album, all set in 1996. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? Neil King was drafted in to produce the album at Fantasy Studios in California. Two years previously, King had engineered Dookie, the breakthrough album from Green Day, a band who openly worshipped Buzzcocks. I give myself the creeps. According to music journalist Ned Raggett, Buzzcocks felt that a little acknowledgement back to Green Day was in order, even going so far as to record at Fantasy Studios, which was located in Green Day's hometown of Barclay. Nonetheless, Buzzcocks were far from trying to capture the MTV audience with a variation on Basket Case. King not only produced all set, but engineered it at the same studio and played piano on the album. His acclaimed producing and engineering work led to one critic noting that things haven't sounded this clear and crisp for the band since the late 1970s. The album was mostly written by Shelley, including Your Love and Give It To Me, although three songs were written by Diggle. When asked why he didn't contribute as many songs on all set as he had on the band's previous releases, 
Diggle explained that the band had recorded six of his contributions, but the songs were delivered too late to the record label. He explained they pressed up the album thinking that was it, and when the album came out I said what the fuck's happened here? You missed three songs. The three missing songs were released a month later as bonus tracks on the Japanese edition of the album, as they were signed to a different record label, Real Cool Records, in Japan. The album is a departure from the band's earlier material, retaining a pop-punk style but adding regular unusual arrangements and instruments in many songs, including a Hammond organ on the lower key groove of Hold Me Close, quirky rhythms, strings and synths. The biggest changes are especially evident in the songs written by Diggle. For example, the epic rock opening of Playing For Time. The concluding two songs are both notable for having a different sound. Pariah has a quirky rhythm crunch to it, a lot like their song 16 from their debut album, while Diggle's Back With You starts off with an acoustic guitar and turns into a string and synth swept declaration of love. Some of the songs on all set seem to borrow whole guitar licks from older Buzzcock songs, such as the European Siren lick from 1979's Harmony In My Head that resurfaces on the song Point Of No Return. However, in a review in the Hartford Courant, Roger Catlin said, These aren't middle-aged musicians trying to pass for callow youth, as some of the songs on the album reflect their maturity and approach to relationships that the early singles just couldn't. He also noted that the sound of the band changes considerably in songs written by Diggle, who he says, sounds a bit like Pete Townsend when he doesn't sound like Peter Frampton. The New York Times said that the album contains sing-along odes to love's confusion in the tradition of older Buzzcock songs. For the release of All Set, the band changed record labels to IRS Records, as they thought that the two labels they were signed to at the time, Castle Records for UK distribution and Caroline Records for US, were not far-reaching enough. When asked about the change of label in an interview with Ear Candy magazine in 1996, Diggle explained that, We thought it would be a better move, you know? Better distribution. Some people had problems finding trade test. All Set was released worldwide on the 14th of May 1996, except in Japan where it was released by Real Cool Records on the 21st of June. The band had only spent two weeks publicising the album when they learnt that IRS had suddenly closed on the 11th of July 1996. Shelley recalled, We were on tour and all the people we were working with suddenly got the phone call that there's no more record company. Miles Golden was trying to buy back his share from EMI, IRS, and he had backers in place. But then the company decided he couldn't have the REM stuff. As a result of that, his backers fell through, so he just threw his hands up in the air in despair. He was left with no option but to close down the company. This left the band without a record label, which meant the album and its sole single, Totally From The Heart, suffered from a lack of promotion, and subsequently, it was not a commercial success, charting nowhere. That said, steady sales from the tour did uphold its popularity. The album was released during a popular resurgence for punk rock, with older punk bands reuniting and newer ones receiving international exposure, and All Set has been seen as exemplifying this period. In his review of All Set, Roger Catlin of the Hartford Courant proclaimed, What's an unusual summer we're having? The Sex Pistols, whom Buzzcocks opened up for on the 23rd of June at Finsbury Park on the Filthy Lucre tour, the Misfits and the Dictators are all on reunion tours, and there are new albums from Patti Smith, The Specials, and Buzzcocks. What year is this exactly? 
The album was released to a positive reception from music critics. Ned Raggett of AllMusic rated the album 4 stars out of 5, saying, The quartet here sounds like Buzzcocks, if again essentially the pop-friendlier side of the band, and said the album was generally effective business as usual. Robert Criscow gave the album a 3-star honourable mention, signifying an enjoyable effort consumers attuned to its overriding aesthetic or individual vision may well treasure. Roger Catlin of Hartford Corrent was favourable and said the songs from All Set, a title that comes from the oft-repeated phrase used by American waitresses, won't sound out of place amid the classics. Ali Sinclair of Westnet published a positive review and said that the band sounded just as lively as they did back in the mid-70s. The popular side of punk. Less vicious than Sid, more friendly than The Stranglers. Music for pogoing. Trouser Press said All Set was another album of memorable originals with familiar virtues, singling out the songs Totally From The Heart, Hold Me Close, Point Of No Return and Back With You as highlights. Ronnie Daniele of Pop Culture Press called it a solid follow-up to Trade Test and said it showed the band avoiding the sophomore slump. While interviewing Diggle, a reviewer for San Francisco Bay Area Concerts said he had been listening to All Set and noted, It feels just as vital to me as singles going steady. In his 2012 book The Anarchy Tour, music writer Mick O'Shea said that, alongside the band's other post-reunion albums, All Set served to affirm that Buzzcocks could still appeal to a global audience while still remaining true to their original ideals. It has been said that All Set reaffirmed Buzzcock's position as a band deeply loved and revered by a global audience, simultaneously true to their original ideals and open to new ideas. Back in 1996, just after the album was released, a new music game show was launched on the BBC called Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Combining the names of the band, as well as the title of the Sex Pistols album Nevermind the Bollocks, in his 2003 autobiography, Harmony in My Head, Diggle said he and Shelley only granted the BBC the use of the name under the impression that it would be a one-off, probably unsuccessful pilot, and that they are now mildly disgruntled that the name is more readily associated in Britain with the TV series than with their band. Oh, it's good. I mean, I suppose they do it as a, as a homage. You know? It has to pay us some money, but uh, uh, their lawyer's attitude was, well, sewers, you know, and, uh, and we're not really litigious in that fashion. Shelley himself appeared on the programme in 2000, where host Mark Lamar introduced him by saying that without Buzzcocks, there'd be no Smiths or Radiohead, and this show would probably be called Nevermind Joan Armour Trading. Before IRS folded, the band had intended to record and release a second album in 1997 after the tour for All Set, but those plans had to be cancelled. Shelley said in an interview in 1999 that the band had become uncomfortable with trying to be a rock band when everybody else is trying to be one. They thought, why bother? And with their next album made an attempt to be more modern and inflict new influences into their music. Tell me why you look the other way. The concept gave the album its title, Modern. Barber, the band's bassist, arranged and produced the new record, which was recorded in July 1998 at the surgery in Hertfordshire with Derek Fudge engineering the sessions. The band wrote 23 songs, but only recorded 14, with the possible intention to record the other nine songs at a later stage for use as B-sides. The album was mixed over two weeks at Woodbine Street Recording Studios in Warwickshire, 
with extra engineering by Joan A. Rivers, a process which concluded on the 2nd of October and was belatedly mastered in June 1999 by Chris Blair at Abbey Road. Shelley wrote eight of the songs whilst Diggle wrote the remaining five. When interviewed by Ear Candy magazine, Shelley said that there were more ways of writing songs for modern than there were in the 1970s. But then again, there's more distractions. When asked if his writing style was different than Diggle's, he said, well, I tend to wait until the last minute before I write the songs, where Steve likes to finish them all and have them ready to go. I'm notoriously bad. All right, you've got to do the world tour tomorrow, so I just stay up all night writing the lyrics. If it was me, I'd wait until the day of release before finishing. Unlike previous Buzzcocks albums, Modern makes prominent use of electronic instruments and drum machines, particularly on Diggle's material. Shelley's songs are more akin to the band's usual catchy, tightly written pop-punk songs. Modern was a contemporary sounding album, but it is definitely Buzzcocks as Shelley's voice is very distinctive. However, Wilson Neat of Westnet played down the electronic influence on the album, saying that it continues pretty much the same approach as the band's 1970s albums, short, sharp-edged, anxious and angst-ridden, irritable and irritated punk pop. Despite being described by some, as well as by Shelley, as an attempt to sound more modern, many critics compared it to new wave music of the 1970s and 80s. Joshua Klein of the AV Club said, Modern was something else entirely from their previous albums, calling its title ironic, as it essentially picks up where the band left off in 1981 after they split, because it sounds like it was recorded just as punk turned into new wave. However, he also stated that, oddly enough, much of Modern resembles the art punk music founding buzzcock Howard DeVoto made in magazine. Mark Caro of the Chicago Tribune agreed, saying he assumed the title is meant ironically because this is a very 1982 version of Modern, i.e. the buzzcocks have discovered synths and drum machines of the sort Pete Shelley was using in his brief solo career. Similarly, Skate and Annoy said that Modern doesn't look or sound very modern, maybe 20 years old modern, but that's not bad. A lot of the tracks sound like Shelley solo efforts would have sounded if he had stuck to guitars. Comparisons were made between some songs and Shelley's 1983 solo album XL1. Wilson Neat of Westnet said that rather than destroy the pop song, they deconstruct it, playfully reinventing it as a catchy, self-conscious pastiche of itself. Neat noted that as with previous albums, Shelley's work on Modern takes the historically distant, paradigmatic pop format of 50s and 60s bubblegum boy-girl songs as its starting point. But while the lyrical and musical framework of this foundation form is left nominally intact, the harmonies, the IU romance narrative, the straightforward verse chorus structure and the simple chord progressions, it is compressed into a shorter, faster package, supplemented and shot through with jagged, saw-like guitars and scattered with irregular staccato beats, adding that still crucial too is Shelley's distinctive vocal style, which continues to unsettle the traditional formal symmetry of conventional pop. Modern is rife with examples of irregular combinations of short, punchy stanzas and lengthy, weaving run-on lines, sometimes stretched out for a painful but compelling duration, that both carry and lead the songs. Moreover, this combination of the brusque and drawn-out line, on top of the contrast of the staccato beats and the whining UK police siren circa 1976 guitar sound, emphasises the twin-pronged emotional thrust of Shelley's lyrical content. 
that is, the expression of explosive angst and irritability coupled with lingering discomfort and frustration. In 2016, gig slut's Temper Boyd observed that Speed of Life and Don't Let the Car Crash both sport Bowie-esque titles, as David Bowie's electronic-tinged 1977 album Low contained tracks named Speed of Life and Always Crashing in the Same Car. When asking Diggle if the band were inspired by him on the album, Diggle replied, I'd forgotten Speed of Life. It was a little in-joke to me, because I was taking a lot of speed at the time. Britpop was underway, lots of crazy parties, hedonistic times, that notion of living your life, too busy to notice what you're doing. I don't always stop and think, who the fuck am I? He added that Don't Let the Car Crash dates from when he was in a car crash when he was 17. My best mate died, we were all a bit drunk and going down the road. We'd been thrown out of a club for dancing with each other. We got in and the car careened off the road, and I thought, fuck, I'm gonna die. I was thrown about everywhere. We ended up in a garage and demolished the petrol pump. We could have all gone up in flames. When I got out, my mate was on the floor. I thought he was okay. It seemed to take forever. He died. That changed my life a lot. The album was released by EMI in the UK on the 6th of September 1999 and Go-Kart Records released it in the US on the 14th. To promote the album in the UK, EMI released Promotional Product, an EP led by two songs from Modern, Thunder of Hearts and a radio edit of Soul on a Rock, and completed by the band's 1978 single Ever Fallen In Love With Someone You Shouldn't Have. A music video was produced for Thunder of Hearts. As with previous singles, Shelley said the band let other people decide that the song would be the first single. We tend to go with the consensus. It seemed a bit arrogant to say that we know better than everyone else. I mean, we do. Modern and the EP were not commercial successes in either country, but the album saw steady sales due to the band's supporting tour. Due to contractual issues, Modern was belatedly released in early 2000 in Europe and Japan. Critical response to the album was mostly positive. Stephen Thomas Erlewine of AllMusic rated the album three stars out of five, saying that although Diggle's songs sound a little weaker than Pete Shelley's due to their electric influence, Modern is a minor triumph that proves that the Buzzcocks not only sound better than any of their punk peers, they sound better than most of the young punk revivalists. And at the very least, that's somewhat noteworthy. Antec Pistol of Ox Fanzine said the band still write great songs, and said that although the album might not appeal to fans of 1977 punk rock, it would appeal to Buzzcocks fans. Skate and Annoy published a very favourable review. Modern is a very good record. If the Buzzcocks were a new band, this record would probably be getting a lot of press, hype and promotion. Wilson Neat of Westnet said that during its finest moments, Modern reminds us that the Buzzcocks' significant contributions are often unfairly overshadowed by a tendency to look no further than the Sex Pistols or The Clash for a blueprint of British punk. The Pistols wrote the book on punk as situation, style or shock, while The Clash covered the political angle. But Buzzcocks, along with Wire, took punk beyond the gesture and the pose, and left perhaps the most substantial and enduring musical legacy. So, to plagiarise a question asked by Pete Shelley quite a few years ago, what do I get from modern? Quite a lot, actually. During its best moments, Soul on a Rock, Rendezvous, Runaround, Choices, Why Compromise and Under the Sun, this album is vintage Buzzcocks. 
and what more could you ask for? Joshua Klein of the AV Club, on the other hand, wrote, The band reunited in time to ride the new punk wave, but something was missing from its two capable comeback albums. The new modern is something else entirely, essentially picking up where the band left off in 1981. The ironically titled disc sounds like it was recorded just as punk turned into new wave, calling it retro in the best sense. Michael Sandlin of Pitchfork rated the album 3.5 out of 10, and called it wholly ill-conceived and mind-numbingly dull, and that it seems like a weak attempt by a once great band to simply sound current, whatever that means. Mark Caro of Chicago Tribune said, catchiness without urgency equals something, but vintage buzzcocks it ain't. David Daly of the Hartford Corrent said, the buzzcocks caffeinated punk pop of two decades ago was fueled by teenage angst and desire, and of their contemporaries, perhaps only the undertones did it better. Now, it's not that angst ever disappears, but there's still something tragic about singer-songwriter Pete Shelley's attempts to milk those now long-dried wells on modern. As his helium voice laments the return to fast cars, watched phones that don't ring, and misbegotten romances. Shelley and Devoto teamed up in 2002 for the first time since 1976 on a project called Shelley Devoto, producing the album Buzzkunst, Kunst being the German word for art. But it's, it's been really good working with Howard because. In some ways, I'd forgotten about how mad he was in the first place to start Buzzcocks. It's a very different world of musical work. Um, it's computers, you don't sit around with a guitar um, anymore in your front room. You still sit around in your front room, but it's with a computer more than a guitar. The album, which was released on the 5th of March 2002, was a mix of electronic music and punk. The vocals and lyrics, primarily by Devoto, remain reminiscent of his post-Buzzcocks band magazine and Luxuria. The music, however, is something of a departure for both men, blending Shelley's trademark rough yet melodic guitar with electronica. The album was recorded in the duo's homes in London using basic technology. Reviews were mixed but mainly positive. Straight after the release of Buzzkunst, Buzz Cox went back into Southern Studios in London to record their seventh and eponymously titled album, again produced by Barber, and his production had only improved since modern. Buzzcocks, the album, finally sees the band grow beyond making songs about teen angst and more into territory about the bitterness of adult life. The songs all have a harder edge while still incorporating the Buzzcocks' signature repetitive but catchy hooks. It's very, you know, cathartic <laughs> to, uh, to uh, you know, vent your spleen every now and again. So I tended to have songs which were more of uh, an angry nature. I mean, a girlfriend of mine, a uh, 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 stepsister died of leukemia, so there's uh, right. anger about the, uh, the futility of all existence. <laughs> so I, I tried to convey that in words. Well, with a good pop song, with a good measure. There are even two songs co-written by Devoto, Stars and Lester Sands, which are much less electronic and experimental than on the Buzzcunst album and are probably the songs that sound the most like 70s buzzcocks. In fact, Shelley's voice is transported back in time so that it becomes high-pitched again, unlike on the songs penned by him alone. Not all critics agree, though. Pitchfork's Brendan Reed said in his 6.7 out of 10 review, 
Friends finds the band's component parts in inspired cooperation. The breezy melody, giddily climbing chord progression and chainsaw guitars all work to whittle the angstful central assertion, I don't even know if I'll ever be loved again, the only thing I can rely on is change, down to a snotty, sincere perfection. Most, however, fail by inches, not quite tight enough to hold their charm for more than a few listens. Sick City sometimes works brilliantly as an anthem, as long as you can keep the image of Andrew W.K. covering the Jim Blossom's Hey Jealousy out of your head. The resurrected Howard DeVoto-era gem, Lester Sands, while sharp as ever, only suffers from the much cleaner production and Pete Shelley's newly acquired snarl. In fact, a lot of the album's problems come from over-aggressiveness. The further the balance tips towards loud and fast, the deeper the split in their musical personalities show. The Buzzcocks have never needed to bash a chorus into our heads as mercilessly as they do here on Keep On and Morning After, and the grinding fade-outs of each song seem to announce the cynic's ultimate victory over the sensitive. There's an F-rated review by Sam Block of Stylus magazine, but I'm not going to give it any more airtime other than the fact that it exists and that the author clearly has some sort of axe to grind. Pop Matters' Brian James gave the self-titled album a favourable review, but was critical of its production. The album is good, remarkably so considering how late it comes in the group's lifespan, but it's still a late-era release and suffers from many of the same problems so common to that milieu. The production is the first sign of trouble. It sounds much slicker than punk, but not slick enough to be modern, so it winds up feeling outdated instead. Secondly, Pete Shelley's low, even voice lacks the charisma of his erstwhile wine, and Buzzcocks doesn't seem like the Buzzcocks without it. Lastly, the songwriting featured here sounds mostly like so many other elder rockers. What once sounded like it came intuitively has been extrapolated into a formula, as if Shelley and Diggle considered at the outset what they were once loved for and then replicated much of it, all the while failing to capture the idiosyncratic details that are the mark of true inspiration. He adds that when the record is playing, however, such concerns begin to fade with its easy affability. By making a break with the nihilism of the Sex Pistols and the politics of the Clash, they never chained themselves to a sinking ship. Instead, betting on the enduring appeal of the three-minute pop nugget. Aggressive stances of this or that stripe will come and go, like so many Fred Dursts. But men like Pete Shelley and Steve Diggle will continue to earn themselves deserved places in the pop world long after their contemporaries have dissolved back into the tuneless sludge from whence they came. All music critic Mark Deming went further, saying it's encouraging to report that Buzzcocks the band's fourth studio album since their reunion, is the strongest this band has created since returning to active duty. And the production by bassist Tony Barber serves the material well, giving the band a sleek but thick sound which suits both the hooky melodies and the clunky roar of the guitars. If Buzzcocks doesn't reinvent this band, it does give their approach a bit of an overhaul, and the results make for an album which holds on to their strengths while lending a more mature perspective to their work. Hard to imagine Green Day or Rancid having anything this interesting up their sleeve 27 years down the line from their first recording. The band went on tour during which they supported Pearl Jam, but neither it or its two singles, Jerk and Sick City Sometimes, managed to chart. 
Uh, Eddie used to hang out with Steve before he became famous, you see. Before Eddie became famous, you see. <laughs> He's always been famous. <laughs> For the age of 20 or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he used to hang around in my room, but I don't remember this, but uh, I was doing a lot of cocaine and a lot of girls, so that, you know, when you're a younger man, you're a fool if you don't enjoy the perks of the job. I think one time he was there for about three days on and off, you know. Then he sort of disappeared for a couple of days, turned up at a gig and uh, um, I was just about going to stage. There's a message from the security man saying there's a guy called Eddie outside, you know, he's, he, you know, he wants to come backstage. And I said, tell him to fuck off, I don't know anybody called Eddie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, as anybody knows, when you're doing two month tours of America, you soon, you know, you soon forget a lot of things. And, right. um, <laughs> and that's what happened, and that's the last time I saw him, so I'm sure he'll be able to get through the Madison Square Garden. Yeah, so when he comes to Madison Square Gardens, he'll say, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 no,
and bassist Tony Barber's production is clean and roomy, while giving the melodies plenty of opportunity to show off their muscle. Very few bands made better use of their teenage mood swings than Buzzcocks, but Flat Pack Philosophy shows that they have plenty of compelling things to say about their adult lives too, which is a good thing for a band whose career now spans four decades. Pitchfork's David Raposa said of the album in his 7.2 out of 10 review, the album peaks early with the title track, the one about Ikea. There's still plenty to enjoy on the back end though. In fact, the only truly sour track is Sound of a Gun, Diggle's attempt to add some gruff toughness to the Buzzcock's zippy veneer. The group is at its best these days when melding a youthful exuberance with time-worn maturity. Writing on Punk News, Adam White gave the album 4.5 out of 5 and exclaimed Flat Pack Philosophy is another remarkably strong record from a band that all logic says should have fizzled out long ago. I'm at a loss to explain this bewildering yet wonderful revival, but we're lucky it's produced a second high quality record. Where this goes now and how long it keeps up is anyone's guess, as Buzzcocks are clearly at a career stage few bands have ever reached let alone succeeded in. Just after the release of the album, Barker left in April 2006 and was replaced on drums by Danny Farrant, whom Shelley had said learnt 30 songs in two days as the band went off on a supporting tour for Flatpak Philosophy, which saw them play on a leg of the Vans Warp Tour. Two more singles were released from the album. Sell You Everything on the 14th of August, which Pitchfork described as Steve Diggle's shining moment on the album, even if the track's message falls a bit flat, the music, all crashing drums and revved up guitar, gives it the anthemic punch it requires. The second, Reconciliation, was released 18 months later on the 4th of December 2007, just before they supported Maximo Park on their homecoming gig in Newcastle-upon-Tyne on the 15th of December. After a year off, during which Barber left and was replaced on bass by Chris Remington, the band embarked on the Another Bites tour in January 2009 across the UK and Europe. On this tour, they played their first two albums in full, as well as an encore of their other hits. Let's hear you! A few more years passed in which they toured and played festivals, and in November 2011, it was announced they would be playing two shows the next year that would feature a three-part approach. Starting with the current lineup, playing material since the band's reformation in 1989, the second part of the night would bring on Steve Garvey and John Mayer to play classic Buzzcocks hits, and finally Devoto took to the stage with them for the first time in 33 years to perform the four tracks that made up the Spiral Scratch EP, Breakdown, Time's Up, Boredom and Friends of Mine. These shows took place on the 25th of May 2012 in Manchester at the O2 Apollo and on the 26th at the O2 Academy Brixton.
Later that year, they headlined the Thursday night at the Rebellion Festival held at the Empress Ballroom in Blackpool, sharing the stage with Rancid, Public Image Limited and Social Distortion. That year, Shelley moved to Tallinn in Estonia after marrying his second wife, saying he preferred the less hectic pace of life compared to London, where he'd lived for nearly 30 years. On the 1st of May 2014, eight years after Flatpak Philosophy, Buzzcocks returned to their indie roots, releasing their ninth album, The Way, via crowdfunding site Pledge Music, rather than through a record label. 5% of the money raised for the album went to the Teenage Cancer Trust charity. The album was produced by long-term The Cure collaborator David M. Allen, who had also produced albums by The Damned, Sisters of Mercy, Wire, Naina Cherry and The Psychedelic Furs, among many others. It was received warmly, if not as enthusiastically, as the last few albums. This mainly comes down to the fact that both Shelley's and Diggle's voices are clearly losing their power. All Music's Mark Deming said the Buzzcocks clearly have no inclination to stop, but The Way suggests this band is slowly but surely running out of gas, at least as far as writing and recording new material are concerned. Pitchfork's Jason Heller went further, opining in his 5.8 out of 10 review that, instead of jittery counterpoint, there's a lax wobbliness to these songs, and that lack of interplay, both vocally and guitar-wise, is the album's most glaring omission. Energy isn't the problem, they just don't know what to do with it. Every song here wants to be an anthem, and a couple almost hit the mark but the majority are barely worthy of Jinglehood. The Way is the converse of what Buzzcocks fans might have come to expect from the band at this point in the game. Instead of growing soft and slick while retaining their songwriting prowess, they've stayed fast and raw, but left much of their pop craft somewhere behind. However, Colin Brennan of Consequence of Sound was more upbeat, saying, less concerned with fictional romance than with virtual reality, it's an anxious record from a band that should be settling comfortably into old age. It's also a powerful argument for why Buzzcocks remain relevant in spite of their increasingly troubled take on modernity. Gillian Gar of Paste was more effusive still, saying, It's trademark Buzzcocks, with the slashing guitars to get you going and biting lyrics that let you know it's not all fun and games. It's good to have these guys back. On the 13th of September 2014, Buzzcocks played at Riot Fest in Chicago, Illinois and toured as headliners around the UK in October for three weeks with the Dolly Rots as main support. 2016 saw the band embark on its 40th anniversary tour, dubbed Buzzcocks 40. On the 6th of December 2018, Shelley's brother Gary McNeish announced on Facebook that Peter died from a suspected heart attack at his home in Tallinn. He was 63. Tributes to Shelley came from a diverse range of music industry professionals, including Pearl Jam, Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, Pixies, Billy Talent, Peter Hook of Joy Division and New Order, Duran Duran, Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day, Mike Joyce of The Smiths, and for a short while, Buzzcocks, 
Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet, Flea of Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mike Mills of R.E.M., Ginger Wildheart from The Wildhearts, ex-Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock, Mogwai's Stuart Braithwaite, as well as author Neil Gaiman. Billy Bragg paid tribute to Shelley, covering Ever Fallen In Love With Someone You Shouldn't Have the next night at the Meredith Music Festival in Australia. In accordance with Shelley's wishes, a private funeral was held in Mardu, Estonia on Thursday, December 13th. It was attended by his wife and a few close family friends. As noted in his eulogy, however we knew Pete, we will miss him sorely in all his shapes and guises, but his legacy will live on in our memories and in the ways he has touched our lives. Nobody anticipated it, it was a, a shock because it was kind of instant, you know, but uh, one minute was at home and the next minute was so hospital and a heart attack. And I got a call off the manager a couple of hours later and, um, and that was it. So there was no kind of build up to it, you know. We, uh, we had some shows booked for um, sort of four weeks ahead of that and um, it put everything in turmoil really, yeah. And, um, Turn my life upside down, suddenly you get all the memories and then, um, you know, we met when we was 20 years old and we were together 43 years, you know, through, yeah. through the birth of punk to, you know, uh, the madness of touring, making great records and everything. So we, uh, we spent a lot of time together and did a lot of things together. So when you think about it, you know, and like it, it's kind of most my life like it was his, you know. Mm. So it was, uh, they're like two mountain climbers, both going up the mountain tied together. If one goes off, the other does, you know. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. It's a combination where, as two artists, or being in a band, you know, that's, that dynamic makes the band, really, and that's really what we had, you know. He really couldn't have done it without me, and I couldn't have done it without him. It's kind of the way it works in, in great bands. So, um, you know, it's a massive loss on every level, you know, like say on a personal level, as a mate going through all the interesting times and all the times in the pubs drinking and um, talking about philosophy and telling jokes, you name it, you know, cover the whole, all the things you do in life and um, and being in the studio making great music and being on the stage, all the, the power, you know. I used to say we're polar opposites, but Pete said we're not, so I think he didn't like that. I mean, I didn't mind it. I, th I think I thought we complimented each other, and that was the thing. Um, but um, there was a lot of similarities, really. We was the same person, but uh, <laughs> same person, but two different people as well, two different sides to the same character, really. You know, um, there was a lot of things in in common more than perhaps we realised. You know, following his death. The Pete Shelley Memorial Statue Campaign was established in order to raise funds to create a lasting memorial in his hometown of Lee, Lancashire, for his achievements and contributions to the music industry. The funds still haven't been raised so far, as of August 2020. The most recent fundraiser was a gig at St Joseph's Hall in Lee on the 15th of February 2020. In June 2019, Buzzcocks performed with several guest vocalists as a tribute to Shelley. The concert had already been planned before Shelley's passing. Far from this being the end for Buzzcocks, Diggle has said that the band will continue with the post-Shelley Buzzcocks being a new era. People are willing me to carry on, you know, because we almost looked a bit similar when we were younger, you know, I'm, like, I'm, I'm still the alive one, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, will you carry on, Steve? So I think I will, and I'll be honoured to do 
his songs. And I'll be doing a lot of my songs from the Buzzcocks days that we're, we, ne we never did sometimes. Mm. And um, I'm having a job remembering some of the songs. I think I heard a band flag of convenience in mm. the 80s. And I've just done, a, I'm on my fifth solo album. So I'm thinking I've done a lot of work really. And a lot of people, it's a bit more underground, my solo. Well, not in terms of accessibility, just in terms of not on the spotlight, uh, in the spotlight on top of the pops or something with the, my solo stuff. But there's a lot of good stuff there that people like and have been with me on their journey on that, you know. So I'll put some elements in that in, and people do want me to play some of that stuff, but I'll do a lot of Buzzcock songs that we haven't done for years, <laughs> including some of Pete's that we never got around to. So to give the fans that, and, um, Keep the flame alive for Pete and for myself, you know, because mm. the good body of work there, I could walk away from it and do my solo stuff. And I have thought about that. And then I thought, well, it'd be a shame to let that die yet. I'm still alive for a few years, hopefully. <laughs> This three-piece lineup has since released a single, Gotta Get Better, Destination Zero, on the 14th of February 2020 on Cherry Red Records. Gotta Get Better is a reworking of a Diggle solo song which he released back in 2014. The band had planned on a short American tour in May, but this was cancelled due to the coronavirus pandemic. When the Buzzcocks started, punk was still something of a reaction against pop, and combining the two has always been a tricky balancing act, as punk tends to bludgeon the nuance out of pop, and pop sweetness neuters punk attitude. For pop punk to work in any context besides novelty, the balance must be close to perfect. Even though Buzzcocks sounded like they were always playing with complete abandon, they had the instincts and the songwriting talent to hit that mark with decent frequency, something not all pop-punk bands managed to achieve. With their crisp melodies, Shelley's biting lyrics, and Shelley's and Diggle's driving guitars, Buzzcocks were one of the most influential bands to emerge in the initial wave of punk rock. Buzzcocks were inspired by the Sex Pistols' energy, but they didn't copy the Pistols' angry political stance. Instead, they brought that intense, brilliant energy to the three-minute pop song. A lot of the Sex Pistols songs aren't political. They're all about actually coming to terms with being yourself. Um, and, and the politics was just something which was thrown on because there was talk of anarchy and, and, and a new order and revolution. And therefore that's why they, the whole political thing got clustered together. And a lot of people think that a political solution is the only one, but you've got to change people as individuals uh, before you can change people en masse and it will work. So I think people need um, uh, a, a new way of living inside themselves and it's, and it's only then can people actually do things. Shelley's bisexuality was a big feature of his lyrics which explore sexuality and relationships. The music that, that we've grown up on had this um, ambivalence about sexuality. And so we wear heavy metal to protect their, their honour and family. Uh, and we were, you know, seen as uh, being a bit subversive and decadent, really. 
and uh, it was a decadence we all thrived in, and that was something which was allowed in, in gay clubs. So there was a, a big association, really, was, um, and just being places where you could, you know, hang out. Uh, in in London, the, one of the first punk clubs was called Louise's, and that was a gay club. So, so I mean, it, it was just that the people weren't going, oh, you, you look different, you frighten me, you can't come in. They would allow people to dress as they wanted. If you wanted to wear a dress, you could wear a dress. If you wanted to, you know, come with this new, I don't know, outrageous fashion which was associated with punk, then that was okay too. It was a, it was a time where people, the whole idea with punk was that people could do what they wanted to do. It was about, it wasn't about trying to be stereotypically rock and roll. Um, and of course, Everybody who was involved with punk knew that if it hadn't been for David Bowie, there would be no punk really, as it turned out. Um, and so a lot of people who were, you know, were straight and bi or curious or gay, they were all, uh, you know, they were quite um, unfazed by uh, people having a sexuality other than uh, you know, the missionary position. He also specifically shied away from using he or she pronouns in his songs, preferring you and I. He said in an interview with Pitchfork in 2009, it's one of those awful things about gender in songs. It's a bit clumsy when women sing Frank Sinatra songs. Sometimes the lyrics have to change. Sometimes it would be quite impossible. Some songs are specifically about someone in the situation. It's a universal thing, the way we deal with relationships with other people. The object of my attention could be either. I can always say this one's about you, even if I wrote it about someone else. Shelley's alternately funny and anguished lyrics about adolescence and love were some of the best and smartest of his era. Now that Buzzcocks continues under Diggle's leadership, it will be interesting to see what comes next. I still never left, yeah. I mean, Pete, and John, uh, Pete left, then John and uh, then Steve Garvey left, then uh, John Barr left. Mm. But I never threw the towel in, so maybe that's why I'm still here doing it. I always had the belief in it, I would have kept it on all the way through anyway, you know. for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at Band Biographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 